Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Welcome back, everyone, to Heels in the Courtroom. Today, we are talking about rules and how we follow them and the process of doing so in our practice. So, on the way to work this morning, I tend to listen to a newscast, and a gentleman was being interviewed having to do with some testimony on Capitol Hill. And he had joined the State Department in October of 2001, which made me automatically think about 9-11, and he must have joined after that. And one of his supervisors, or at least someone with whom he met early on, was John Bolton. And the advice that Ambassador Bolton had given to this gentleman at that time was to get the process right, because when you get the process right, your opponents will have no option but to argue the substance with you. And that really rang true to me, not so much in the context of government bureaucracy, but with our practice, because we have rules of civil procedure. So that's procedure and process. And if we aren't following the rules for filing a motion or responding or whatever the topic is, that is always an easy target for your opponent to say, you didn't follow the rules. This motion shouldn't be argued today. The, the judge has no discretion in, in granting you time uh, or whatever the argument is, and you never get to the substance. So it just occurred to me with that little quote how important and how true it is and how we live that every day in our practice. So, for example, I had a case a number of years back in a nearby county, and we were filing the certificate of filing with the medical records and bills. So I had my pleading put together. We had all of our affidavits attesting to the foundation for the medical records and bills, and the pleading, the certificate of filing, it's called, was filed, but my secretary had put all of the affidavits and all of the medical records, which were voluminous, on a disk, which you can't physically, at this point, it's all electronic filing, and you can't physically file a a disk. So she called the clerk, and the clerk said, oh, you know, just file the pleading, it'll be fine, make sure to send the disk to opposing counsel, which is what happened. So we get to pretrial, and the defense argued, if you look at the business record affidavit statute and the statutes that apply, use the word shall, the affidavit shall be filed. And the only thing that actually got filed was the pleading referencing all of the affidavits and the records. And you could argue if it's referenced just because it's physically not in the file isn't that really form over substance. However, this particular judge was really caught up on the shall in the statute and essentially struck all of my medical bills and records. So that turned out to be a pretty costly error on our part because we weren't able to present these thousands and thousands of dollars of medical bills charged to to the jury. And 
Now, I guess you can look at that and say, well, I lost the case, so uh, it didn't really matter, which was just a small, small consolation. And when I appealed the case, it really wasn't something that I could appeal because it was a procedural issue, largely, of course, within the discretion. How could there be an abuse of discretion if the statute said shall? And then, of course, if I got a new trial, the dates would reset and I could file it correctly. But that's just an example of how following the process and the procedures really prevented me from arguing the substance of the medical bills, the injuries. I mean, the injuries were still there, but we all know that if the larger the bills are, the more people think you're hurt. So I hate to kind of admit that little story, but... That makes me so mad because I feel so bad for your assistant in that case, too, because she called the clerk. Absolutely. You know, and it's such, and I feel like that is such an example of so many things that happen in our practice. Like, you can call the clerk and ask for advice and things like that, but the clerk is not the one who sets the rules. Of course, like, following what the clerk says will always be a good thing, but it didn't protect you guys in that situation from being hammered by the judge about exactly what the procedure should be. The letter of the, of the rule. Yeah, that's so tough. Now, there are other examples where there, the flip side is where we use, it doesn't always have to be a shield. The rules also can be a sword. So we've all had situations where we've decided to pull the rule out when responding to something and see, oh, our opponent didn't do it right. And so then you can kind of internally debate whether this is something important enough to really pull out and say to opposing counsel, you screwed this up, you know, you blew it. Now, I mean, I think that's also a hard decision to make sometimes. Because if you want to get along with people, which is always my first choice, and you point out a mistake that was made that probably wasn't the, the lawyer's mistake who showed up to argue it, it, was, it could very well have been a small little procedural mistake by a staff member, but you own it. You own it. So it is, I mean, I think we've all been there where you see the rule, it's not followed, you're like, oh, right, that worked great. And then you kind of feel badly about it. Yeah. I mean, just for a minute. Well, I and say, I don't feel that badly about it. And I think it's important to, to acknowledge that we have rules. I mean, they're there for a reason and they apply to everyone equally. And so... I think it's fair game to point out, hey, judge, there are things that we have to follow here, and they did not comply with that. I didn't make the rules. I didn't set the rules. Someone else hired them, he did, but I recognize them and I respect them. But at that same time, after maybe making that point, don't belabor it, because I think that goes to, to what you're saying of we don't want to make the other person feel terrible, especially if it's not something that is necessarily their fault. Or point out malpractice. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> But I think our job as attorneys is to argue all angles, both procedural and then move on to substantive arguments as well. I think that's the the best and most professional way to handle it. This brings two examples to mind for me. So just last week, I have a new case that's on file. And funny enough, it's the first case that I've had since I've been with our firm that is against my old practice group at my old firm. I may have had one or two other cases with attorneys from my old firm, but this is within the practice group. That, that took a that while. I, I think That's so good. too. Yeah. And I can't wait because they know 
they know what my work is, at least in the first three Are years. Listening? Yeah, yeah. Are you listening? <laughs> anyway, so in Missouri, you, I always serve my discovery with the petition because the lag time to allow the defendants to answer and then remembering to serve my discovery is it's just it backs up my practice. So I always serve those together, which means that the defendant has 30 days to answer our petition. And if the discovery is served with the petition, then they have 45 days from the date of service to answer the discovery. So the opposing counsel, who is my old colleague, called and asked for an extension on the answer. And I said, no problem. Like, I think it was a month, maybe. And until two weeks later, I didn't remember, or he didn't remember, to address the date of when the discovery is due. The discovery was due, like the the calendar appointment came up on my calendar, and I called him and I was like, hey, your discovery's due today. I assume you intended for an extension on that as well. But with that being said... I've also been in situations where like I missed the dis- I missed a discovery deadline maybe and the next day the attorney files something oh, that right. said like yeah. all objections away blah 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 and fighting words. of course I can't think of a situation where I would do that unless it was an opposing counsel that I just really don't get along with and I guess the moral of the story is if you don't get along with people it can come back to you in bad ways, but also there are plenty of counsel that we work against who deserve our, <laughs> <laughs> who don't deserve our Those professional, comes around, baby. Yeah, you know, who, who you don't deserve the professional courtesy. So I feel like it's one of those things like you can miss on a technical aspect of something and it may not be a big deal, but if you don't have a good relationship, it may bite you. For sure. Yeah. On that note, and sort of on Liz's as well, I had a request for a continuance filed, contingents of the trial date. And the rule is very clear that you have to have an affidavit with that. And it makes sense if you think about it, because if you really have a good reason, then you should be able to swear and to affirm that what that reason is versus, oh, whatever, make up some reason why you're just not ready for trial. So I do think that it's important to have that extra added requirement But it's kind of, I was going to say it's fine print. It's not fine print. It's in the rule. If you read the rule, you could read it. But this happened twice, almost within a week. And I was really torn about what to do with that motion. Do I show up and just say, sorry, the FDA wasn't filed. It's not discretionary. Do I kind of give them the heads up? I want the motion to be denied. It's very important that this case go forward. But I, I did. I really struggled because my model is I'm nice until I'm provoked. So I want to get around with people, but if you provoke me, and maybe the older I get, the, the easier that is to do. I, don't, I can't decide. Um, then, I mean, gloves are off. There's really, I, I tried. I, I think there's a great deal of advantage to getting along with opposing counsel for so many reasons. Just you never know when you're going to be the one needing the courtesy, but it just feels right because we all end up seeing each other quite a bit if you're in a smaller practice area. And Liz, kind of what you said, I started out with the technical issue, but I was prepared for the substantive argument. And I kind of presented it to the judge, and you have to know your judge too, like, hey judge, this is dispositive. If you want to go with this, cool. Otherwise, I'm ready to rule, I'm ready to discuss substantive argument here. We have 
a duty and we've got rules to follow and it's not like they're secret rules. Yeah. That's one thing that really attracts me to this profession and to this practice is there are rules to follow and they are known and some people follow them well and some people not so much. And I believe the ones that don't follow them as well don't do as well, aren't as mm -hmm. successful. And that's okay with me. Well, and I think earlier I said, like, that brings two examples to mind. And then the, I did that bad thing where I just mentioned one. <laughs> did I steal but, the other one? <laughs> well, and that's the other thing I was thinking about because this always comes up because on the plaintiff side of litigation, we are almost never moving a trial date. We want that trial date to start as soon as possible. Of course, the process already takes so long. So it's very difficult to explain to our clients, you know, why it now needs to take longer. So because we have that rule of the affidavit with a motion to continue a trial setting, every time I get one, which are maybe 50% of trials, right. I'm always... You know, sitting there yeah. like twiddling my thumbs like, are you going to file an affidavit? <laughs> no. Okay. Right, Let you me lose. bring up. Well, and I don't file written response in the, no. those situations no. because I don't need to alert them. But yeah, that setting is is where I don't usually throw a bone out. <laughs> no. And it's and I agree with you. It's because we have an obligation and duty to our client. And you're right. It seems that... We set trial dates because we know that the case will get resolved if it's going to get resolved with a trial date. Either it will settle or, by golly, you're going to get your verdict, whatever it is. And unless you have that trial date, it just goes to the back burner. And that's sort of the way life is, right? I mean, if you have a deadline, you're going to meet it. If you don't, then other deadlines get ahead of it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the most important things that we do is run out and get our trial date and then... Uh, try to stick with it. Just on that topic, I was talking to another lawyer friend of mine the other day, and they were litigating a personal injury case in a rural county that doesn't see a lot of personal injury litigation, quite frankly. And if that, most of them don't go to trial. And this was a pretty complex personal injury case where there were some really substantive arguments on causation and liability, both. And the judge, there's two really experienced lawyers on either side of the case. And the judge hasn't really handled many personal injury cases at all. And she was real frustrated by the case the whole time. And I've talked to this lawyer about the case as it's gone along. So they showed up last week, two weeks ago, and mentioned, she asked, like, where are you guys on resolving this? The trial date was in a month from their hearing. And they said, oh, we plan to mediate in a week or two. And in response to that, she said, okay, well, then I'm going to take it off the mm -mm, trial no. for now until the mediation happens. And the other attorney, well, and let me rephrase this. The firm that the attorney is with is extremely experienced and well-known. This my the person I was talking to, my friend, is a newer attorney. So she like called me like, oh, my God, this happened. And I was like, oh, no, like it is just a fundamental misunderstanding because most judges who handle personal injury cases on a regular basis know that nothing is going to happen with that case without that trial date nope. looming. Mm -mm. So quite frankly, I was like, I am sorry, your mediation is Just no longer, yeah, is no longer going to have the effect you want it to. And I was, I felt so bad. She was so frustrated. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. 
Well, I, in, well maybe in a polite that. way. You can absolutely <laughs> do that in a polite way. I think you say, Your Honor, I appreciate that, but could you just please hold off? Yeah. Would you mind? You'll be the first one to know if we are able to settle this case. If not, we'll get it. We'll get it resolved at, at trial as efficiently as we can. I mean, I think you can. I, I could see where if you were caught off guard by that, yeah. and, she, and the judge said it with quite a bit of authority, then you wouldn't you wouldn't exactly know how to pose that. Well, and I think that's where she was really upset because she thought she missed an opportunity. Yeah, yeah, she thought she missed an opportunity to we do you that. know say. You know, Judge, nothing's going to happen with this case without the trial date. Yeah. So, yeah, I hear you. Okay, so the rule of the day is follow the rules. Yeah. The takeaway. So you can get to the substance. <laughs> yes. Get to the substance because that's more fun. It's way more fun. That's so where the- you'll win. You'll certainly lose <laughs> if you don't follow the procedure. <laughs> that's right. If you don't follow the procedure, you will lose. If you do follow the procedure, you might win. You, yeah. It's you, the best we can hope for. You'll have a shot. <laughs> My takeaway is I need to start serving discovery with my petition. (laughs) Are you kidding? Absolutely. (laughs) That's what I learned. So I'm a little little disturbed by what I learn (laughs) from my colleagues about what I'm doing wrong. And Liz, it it won't put anything else on your plate. Every time I assign a petition to a clerk to draft, I also assign them the discovery. You know, I've hinted at that. And the request. It's a mild suggestion. And and the request for admission which in Missouri there is a rule that you can't serve those until like 30 days after they answer or something Mm -hmm. like that but I have certain requests for admissions in certain cases that like I just need these answers up front to make sure like the name of your corporation yeah Yeah. so all at the same time but we We should start don't let me teach you bad habits learn from Erica Mm. Well, here's, okay, I don't even know if this is relevant to what we're saying right now, but here's how I learned it at my old firm on the defense side. There are so many cases that in attorneys who will wait six months to start written discovery. I know, because you lose track of it. Yeah, totally. And so (laughs) if you do that... If you serve it, then I'm like, okay, so 45 days. So, like, depots? Yeah, let's and do the it. other attorneys are like, will you get off my back? <laughs> and I'm like, no, you drew me. <laughs> <laughs> so, go tell your friends. <laughs> yeah, I've had like defendants' depots and said, I need blah, 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 discovery answers, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, we never sent discovery. I'm like, oh. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I'll just ask every question that would have been in the interrogatories to the doctor as I. Yeah, and that'll be fine because yeah. they probably didn't yeah. answer them completely the well, first time. Well, I don't know that I've ever seen a, a thorough and complete answers to interrogatories. Yeah, both sides are guilty of that with written discovery. Right. I mean, like, I actually have sort of maybe calmed my anxiety about that because yeah. I don't know how important at least the first set is anyway. I mean, mm-hmm. really, if you once you get in and know what to ask for, that's important. But first set of interrogatories, really. Like, oh, confirm that's your name. That's your name. Do you that's have your insurance? date of birth? Yeah. <laughs> what is it with the MedMail, like this two and a half page interrogatory about your qualifications and all I ever do is say CCV, which right. never answers even half of the seven questions. But okay, we digress. So the rule for the day is to follow the rules. We thank you for joining us on this episode of Heels in the Courtroom. And we look forward to talking to you guys next time. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.
Appeals in the Courtroom is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Connect with Amy, Liz, Mary, Erica, or Elizabeth at heelsinthecourtroom.law.